Okay, two more weeks in Nehemiah in your booklet. We're on page 70 now. We're actually back in chapter 1. You'll see 1-1 one, one at the top. We're getting towards the end. We're going to spend two more weeks in Nehemiah because when I was doing this in May, thinking a lot about this, it hit me that there were two very practical things in life that I think Nehemiah speaks to, and I wanted to bring us to those things and, and think about those things. So we're going to hit one this week and one next week. Um, so as you're turning there, a couple of quick things. It is Advent season, and we're challenging everybody to live the Advent conspiracy, to worship more fully, to spend less, to give more, and to love all well. And, you know, we've had the sheet back there of ways that I can do that. Um, Carrie Hess spoke to me recently about um, just wanting to honor Allie, and her request really fits that well, because Allie's middle name was Hope. And so Carrie just challenging our body that all of us do something to serve somebody in an unexpected way this Christmas season and to do that in honor of her because she so much lived that way. She lived to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the lives of people, especially those that were kind of forgotten, if you know her story, left aside a little bit. So, um, And if you have her as a friend on Facebook, put a little heart and hope. That's all she asks that you do. We have some sheets in the back if you want to read actually what she sent, but just a way to live into the Advent. One other quick thing, I know some of our college students are graduating either Friday or Saturday. Um, I know Sammy in back is, Wilson, who's back there. It's like all of our graduates are back there. Ella, I found out, is. She's normally back in the tech booth. Everybody's looking like that's where we put all of our graduating college. Anybody else graduating this weekend from Emporia State that's in here? Because if so, I have a gift, something I want to give you after the service. I see somebody over here. Who, who, who? Yeah, so then you come on up here afterwards, and I want to give this to you. What are you, you're graduating with what degree? Elementary ed, where are you heading? To Goddard. So at the end, when we send people, you are specifically sent to that, because God has a mission for you there, and that's kind of what this morning is about. So come see me afterwards, okay? And congratulations. Okay, so we're in Nehemiah, chapter 1. And what we're going to talk about this morning is actually calling and vocation. So it fits really well with those our people that are graduating, but it's not just that those people, it's everybody. I think over the years, one of the big questions I've gotten from people is this question that when it comes, there it is right there, when it comes to my work, how do I know what to do with my life? And it's, I've been asked that by a lot of college students, but it's been more. I've been asked that by people in their 30s, people in their 40s, people in their 50s. I've had retirees ask me that question. In fact, in the last two months, I've had two individuals who retired who are having a sense of like, I need to find the thing God wants me doing right now. So I've had this conversation um, with lots of people. I don't think you can ever fully outgrow this question. And when it comes to work, um, sociologist um, Robert Bella, who wrote the book Habits of the Heart, a really good book, says that there's three orientations people tend to take towards their work. Some people, their work is simply as a job. It's to make money. It's like the bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work, I go. Okay? These people, the question that they ask is, how can I make more money? Second way of looking at your work is others see their work as a career. And on this, the, the focus is on advancement. It's on prestige. It's on climbing the corporate ladder. And what these people are asking is, what job is my next step up? That's the question in their mind. And then finally, there are a minority of people who see their work as a calling. And this flows from the conviction that God created me, gave me certain gifts and bents and things, and he has a specific kind of work generally that he wants me to do. And so the question here is, under this one, 
is how, with my God-given abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to others? Or the question we could ask, what am I uniquely created to do? What am I uniquely created to do? I want to speak for a minute about that word vocation. It comes from um, an old English word, I won't get into that, that comes from Latin, the Latin word vocare, which means to call. And so vocation really means the idea of a calling. Um, specifically, it is a sacred calling, live for the, glory and God, for the glory of God and the good of the world. So your vocation refers to the specific unique contribution that God wants you to make in the world and the spaces that you inhabit. Um, somebody said, he's given us a sacred trust so that we can engage in a sacred task. It's me discerning what things best fit me, and I can use those things to serve and bless others, and I can do that all for the glory of God. Um, Ephesians 2.10 speaks to this idea of vocation, Psalm 139.13-14. I'm not going to get into those, but those are two key scriptures. Now, sadly, this word vocation is not used much in our culture anymore. Even in a lot of Christian circles, you hear it some, but not in nearly enough. And I think that's because for centuries in the West, the only people vocation was used for were people in full-time ministry working in a church. The nuns, the priests, the bishops, the monks, those were the only people for hundreds of years that the word vocation was used for. And it created this secular, sacred divide because those people in ministry, right, they're doing eternal work, but everybody else is doing earthy kind of work, and the value is not as good in that level. Um, But thankfully, during the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that flipped on that is there became this emphasis, excuse me, this emphasis, talk about flipping, I about flipped, this emphasis that all work is God's work, and all work is sacred's work, and all of us have a vocation. Um, so the reality is, is that God calls all of us equally that we all have a vocation to live into. So here's the big question when it comes to this. How do I discern my vocational calling? And over the years, I've used four key questions that I've asked people to help them discern that. And then I have ran, run into, Tim Keller has a model that I find extremely helpful. And so I, I've tried to integrate those two things into asking this question, how do I discern my vocational calling? And Tim Keller says that when trying to answer this question, I need to look at three particular things. I need to look at my abilities, I need to look at my affinity, and I need to look at my opportunities. And what I add to this is those top two are about knowing myself, and the bottom one is about knowing my situation, that all of that is really important. So the four key questions I've always asked people fit the top two about knowing myself. And I want to start with the first one, which is ability. And the first question we ask here is, what are my gifts and abilities? What am I really good at? What do I do well? Um, Regarding our gifts and abilities, our talents, William Gladstone says, he is a wise man who wastes no energy on pursuits for which he is not fitted. And he is wiser still who from among the things he can do well chooses and resolutely follows the best. And I love W.H. Auden because he says it a lot more succinctly. You owe it to all of us to get on with what you're good at. Isn't that good? So we ask questions like this. What are my core strengths and abilities? What am I good at? Particularly, what are the things that I'm best at? And what area do the things I do seem to make the greatest impact? Those are some of the questions we ask under that. 
The second question we ask under ability is, what is my unique personality and temperament? Because God has given all of us a unique personality and temperament. It's like a fingerprint that's internal, okay? And you need to understand that because that's essential in understanding the vocational calling God has on your life. Um, there's a lot of ways to explore this. Myers-Briggs is one of them. There are other personality tests. I don't put all my eggs in those baskets. They're helpful. One very simple one is what's called the DISC profile, which puts people into kind of four quadrants, and I know that's a little simplistic. It still is helpful to think about myself. Um, that first top axis is the one between unstructured and stru structured. Some people love unstructured environments, give me a lot of flexibility. I don't want a lot of planning, right? And there are other people that are extremely structured, and they want very structured environments. And then the other axis is that people task orientation. Some people are energized in doing tasks, doing things. Other people are more energized being with people and helping people, right? Working with people. So I need to kind of figure out where do I fall in that kind of thing. Um, an example would be that if you're a task-oriented person who loves structure and low risk, probably perhaps a job doing some important work at a desk would really fit you well. Does that make sense? That's just kind of an example of that. Now I want to move on to affinity. And the first question we ask here is, what are my God-given desires and longings? Because my heart longings are intended by God to help give me a sense of the thing that He's called me to do. And here's what's really important when I think about this. When I am living in right relationship with God, that's important. When I'm living in right relationship with Him, He will place in me the desires that He wants to put there to help me have a sense of my calling. Eric Little, the famous Scottish Olympic champion, a missionary to China, wrote in a letter to his sister, I believe God made me for China and I want to be a missionary. I also feel that he made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Isn't that good? I feel his pleasure. So in regards to work, we ask questions like, what are the desires of my heart? What are my passions? What are my longings? What interests me? Um, what brings me joy? What do I long to do more than anything else? Um, I've got a whole lot more I can say about a lot of this stuff. I just want to say, particularly in this area, um, Jordan and I do a podcast every Monday. We record after the sermon where we go in more detail. I left a lot of things on the cutting room floor related to vocation that we're going to talk about tomorrow. So um, if you've never listened to it, maybe that would be a good chance to hear some of the other things that I'm not going to talk about this morning. Second question, so back to this topic, to ask under affinity is where do I feel brokenness in the world? Where do I feel the brokenness in the world? Because your vocational identity will be aligned with where you feel the pain in the world. That's part of this. Um, one pastor calls this your holy discontent. It's where, like with Popeye, there's something that you just say, I can't stand that, and I can't stand it no more, right? And that's how Nehemiah was last week, remember? He had a holy discontent. So here we ask questions like, where do I personally sense the needs of the world? Where do I see and feel the brokenness in God's creation? What breaks my heart and calls me to do something or to be something more? Now, when we talk about affinity, what we just talked about, my desires and longings, how I feel the world's brokenness, they're both important. That's why Frederick Buechner said really well, I think, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Isn't that a really good quote? So that's why that infinity is important. And I want to bring those affinity and ability together for a minute. You can begin, I want to emphasize that word, begin to find your vocational calling by God at the intersection of those four realities, 
When you know what are my strengths and abilities, when I know my personality and temperament bent, when I have an understanding of my longings and desires, and I understand of how I feel the brokenness of the world. Because he's placed a sacred trust of those four things into every one of us, every one of us, and we're called to steward those four things for him and for the sake of the world. And that intersection, that intersection of your affinity and ability, that's your North Star vocationally, okay? If you play baseball, that's your wheelhouse. Or we could say that's your sweet spot. If you've done any sport where you hit anything, you understand the sweet spot, right? Whether you're playing baseball, golf, I particularly have felt it there because I rarely hit the ball well on the sweet spot in golf. And when you do, you feel it, you hear it, and it has maximum impact, right? So that way in tennis, when I played racquetball, man, you could tell when you hit the sweet spot. And so it's the same with my vocational sweet spot, that when I live there, it brings me joy and gladness. I have maximum impact, and it brings the greatest glory to God. So that's why those two areas are so important. And I want to say one more thing about that sweet spot. Um, Because figuring out your vocational sweet spot, it's not easy. It's not cut and dried. There is mystery to all of this. You'll never totally figure it out. That's what I found in my life and many others. Um, the truth is, is getting to know, figuring out that is an unfolding process, an unfolding process. I'm going to speak to this more in a little bit. Dorothy Sayers said it really well when she said, God's will does not come to us in the whole, but in fragments and generally in small fragments. It is our business to piece it together and to live into one orderly vocation. So the reality is, is very few people find their sweet spot right out of college, in their first job, right out of high school, whatever. Very few find that sweet spot at that point. And here's why I think Tim Keller is so helpful to me. Because answering the question of ability and affinity is not not enough alone. I've also got to ask questions related to opportunity. I not only know myself, but I've got to know my situation, okay? Really significant. Let me give you an example. I know somebody in this body who is feeling led by the Lord to be a missionary. He has spoken with a missions agency. He feels like his abilities and affinities, that's where he's going. But the missions agency says, you cannot go overseas as long as you still have student debt. And so his, oper- his situation requires that he has to take a job for a time being to use that to pay down the debt so that he can live into his ability and affinities. That makes sense? And that's a God thing. God, it's not like that's against God. That's part of the God's will in his life is that he's in that situation. Here's why this opportunity part is so important. Because if I only focus on ability and affinity, it downplays other things in my life, like my life circumstances, the season in my life, family responsibilities. So we have to think about our current situation opportunities. We have to ask questions like, what doors for service are currently open? What stage of life do I find myself in? What are my current life circumstances? And in this season of my life, what are the current constraints that affect my career choices? Another question, what are my family responsibilities at this moment? How does that impact my choices right now? So, to summarize, I would say we get an inkling of our vocational calling at the intersection of those three big things, right? Knowing myself, my abilities and my affinities, knowing my situation, my opportunities. And I think discerning vocation, it's got to involve all three. If you focus on one or on two without the rest, I think you're going you're to miss it, okay? So all three are extremely important. Now, probably the question is, is what does this have to do with Nehemiah? 
And I want to tell you, this actually has a lot to do with Nehemiah because we find God calling somebody to a particular vocation in chapters 1 and 2. And I'd like to walk through the text and I want to show you this in Nehemiah's life, okay? So we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, if you're there. And at the beginning, we're going to get a glimpse in this first, this first chapter, particularly of his affinity in these, two, in these first two chapters. You'll see desire right off the bat. So I would like you to write above chapter 1, verse 1, I would like you to write the word desire. Write the word desire there. And here's the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah and one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them. Circle the word question. He's showing his desire in this question. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to need some participation here, okay? So don't be afraid to speak up. What are the two things that are on his heart? What's he questioning them about? Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant, the people that are there. Underline those two things because that's showing us what's on his heart. Now we're going to see his burden or what broke his heart. So above verse 3, I want you to write the word burden because now we're going to see that. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I want you to circle that word. It's really significant. I wept, and for some days I mourned, circle that word, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So tell me, what is his burden? What's his holy discontent? What do we see in the text? What's weighing on his heart? Yeah, Jerusalem, the walls and the gates in particular. Those are in verse 3. So underline those things, but it's the city and the people, the walls and the gates. His holy discontent continues in his prayer. I'm not going to read that, verses 5 to 10. That's where he's spilling out his heart on his burden. But when we, we're going to get a deeper glimpse in verse 11 of his desire. So beside verse 11, I would write you, like you to write the word desire beside verse 11. And here's what it reads. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Underline that last sentence. This is revealing more of his desire. So tell me, he's asking for favor in the presence of this man. What man is he talking about? We know the story. Who's he wanting favor with? The king, Artaxerxes, okay? And he says that he would be given success. We know the whole story. What is success in his mind? Huh? To rebuild the wall. To go home to rebuild the wall. Okay. Permission to go. He ends the chapter, I was cupbearer to the king. Now we find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 1. And we're back to his burden. I want you to write burden above 2-1. And here's what the text says. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad. Would you circle that word sad? It's significant. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? Would you circle that word again? Look so sad when you're not ill. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Circle sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. 
But I said to my king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? Okay, circle that again. When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So again, what is the burden God has put on his heart? Two things. Yeah, the ruins of the city of Jerusalem, the walls and gates in particular. So underline those things in verse 3. And now we get back to desire. So above verse 4 on the next page, write the word desire above verse 4. Verse 4 says this, the king said to me, what is it you want? Circle that word. What is it you want? What do you desire? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So tell me, what does he want? He wants to rebuild, right? Last six words. Underline those last six words of verse 5. And now in verse 6, we're going to see opportunity. So write the word opportunity above verse 6. And it reads, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. Circle those seven words. It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. So he's been praying for four months for an opportunity for the king to give him that opportunity to go home. Something that he knew he could not make happen. Only the king could give him the opportunity, right? Do you remember, in fact, it was a human impossibility. Humanly, it was impossible because the king, several years before, had declared by rule of kings and the Persians, which is unchangeable, that those, re those walls will not be rebuilt, if you remember. It was humanly impossible. He's been praying for God to open a door and give him the opportunity, and finally, God works on Artaxerxes' heart, and he grants him the request. Isn't that awesome? I mean, we know the story. Now, the rest of the chapter, we're going to get a glimpse of Nehemiah's ability. So I want you to write abilities above verse 7. Verse 7, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct till I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. And here, it's not detailing, and in, it's not giving it in detail, but we're catching a glimpse of his abilities, right? Of the strengths that Nehemiah has. That he is a man of action and initiative. He is very detailed, right? He's purposeful and he's intentional in things. He thinks things through ahead of time. And he's prepared and he knows what he wants to do. So we're seeing his strengths come out. And as we work through this book, we've seen a, a lot of his strengths, right? A lot of them I actually put on the back of the book. But he's obviously a man with very strong leadership skills, right? He has strong vision. He knows where he wants to go with things. He has a lot of wisdom and insight and discernment. He is a team guy. He wants the effects of synergy. He's a hard worker. We see a lot of his abilities as we read this book. And then verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So what about his personality? The text doesn't really say anything about his personality, but I think on a general level, I, I have a pretty good sense, and I think we all would, 
If I were to use the this test, ask which of these he is, and I know I'm asking this without you having knowing a ton about it, I think it's pretty clear that Nehemiah is a director, that he is a lion. Would you not agree with that? That he's a lion. He's a go-getter. He's a guy that takes charge and gets stuff done. So that's, I think, the personality bent that he has. That's his personality bent. So at the bottom, under verse 10, I just want you to write personality lion. And before we leave Nehemiah, um, I want to show you one more place that I see as desire. So I want you under verse 10, we just wrote, wrote personality lion. Underneath that, I'd like you to write desire and then a dash and Nehemiah 2, 11 to 12. Nehemiah 2, 11 to 12. Sadly, when I put this together, I've left out two important verses that finish this. So I'm going to have them up on the screen. I want you to read. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I mean, underline that last sentence. God had put something on his heart to do. That's all part of the desire that God gave him. So isn't it helpful, isn't it cool to be able to see God working in somebody in the Bible vocationally and how he's calling him to a particular task. Is that not helpful to see? How these same things played out in his own life. And they play out that way in my life. Each of us is called to something. We're created for something. And I figure that out by knowing my abilities, my affinities, and also my opportunity. They all have to go together. Um, I want to conclude with some important things because as I've thought about this and as I've read about it, I have two cautions I want to offer on this topic of vocation. I have three pieces of advice I want to offer, okay? The first caution is this. It's in regard to idealism, okay? Because me talking about this can generate in some people this idea that you can find the perfect job, right? That you can find the perfect job. And I want to be clear that in a broken world, you will not find the perfect job, right? Remember, we live in this already, not yet, this time between the times. You will not find the perfect job until Jesus comes, and then he'll give us a vocation, a new creation. No job will fit you perfectly. And even if you find a really good fit, um, there's going to be stuff you're going to do that you're going to not like, maybe even hate, right? I don't know anybody that has a job that they 100% love everything they have to do. As Bethany Jenkins says, former director of Tim Keller's Center for Faith and Work, she says, there is no job charming, like Prince Charming, right? There is no job charming, so quit looking for it. Because many really do, especially, I'm going to talk more to the young people in a second. Many have this sense, I want to find the perfect job now, right? I want to find it now. And so, they'll ne but they'll never find it, and it will always be looking, and always being discontent, and frequently believing where they're at trying to find that perfect fit, um, looking where the grass is always greener. And as I have heard, where the grass is greener, there may be actually a septic tank there, okay? So be careful of this. And here's why I want to speak to the younger generation that's here in particular, okay? Why I want to speak to some of you. Because there is a cultural narrative, and I think there's a lot of cultural pressure right now to insist that your work be totally fulfilling and it be the dream job that it fully fits your talents and your dreams. Derek Thompson wrote a very profound article in The Atlantic about this, and here's what he said. For today's young people, 
Anything short of finding one's vocational soulmate means a wasted life. He goes on. A culture that funnels its dreams of ultimate meaning and fulfillment into salary jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. So my caution is, let's not be looking for that perfect job, okay? Because you're not going to find it. Um, For me at my age, not so much my parents, but for my grandparents, my grandfathers were just happy to have a job to help the, parent, to help the family survive during the Depression, okay? They, they couldn't focus on this stuff. They just needed work. And for most of human history, most of human history, people haven't been able to live into this, right? They, you, you studied and you apprenticed under your dad and whatever his career was, vocation, that tended to be what you did for generation after generation. Yet they served God fully, okay? So... Just that caution, don't be too idealistic with this. My second caution is about desire and passion, okay? That part of affinity, to not get hyper-focused on that. And here's the reason, because in our culture, everything is about desire, everything. That's the focus of everything. And the problem with it is the Bible says that our desires are fallen, and we all know, especially the longer you live, your desires fluctuate over time, correct? So by themselves, desires and passions are not a trustworthy compass. Um, Again, this is especially true with the younger you are, that I think your perception of your desires is not necessarily accurate for how God wired you, and I think that's why 27% of college graduates do not end up in the work that they studied for, because your desires over time change as you figure that out. Even more than that, I think a soul focus and desire and passion downplays the other things in my life and in jobs, things like who are my coworkers, um, what's my commute, what's the location, how near am I to family, those are important things. And then I would say most importantly, our calling in life are more than our passions, right? It's more than just our passions. Each of us have many other roles to play, being a grandfather, being a parent, Being a child, right? Being a friend, being a part of a faith community. Those are all important roles. And when we just talk about passion and desire, we forget those things. And we need not forget those things. Our situation is really important. How many of you have seen... So here's a better question before I ask that question. A better question to ask is, am I living all of my life before God and His glory? Not just my passions and desires, okay? All of my life. How many of you have seen the Disney Pixar animation Coco? If you've seen Coco, don't be ashamed. It's one of my favorites, top three. Here's why I love Coco. Because Coco is the anti-Disney movie. Every Disney movie is about follow your dreams, follow your passions. It doesn't matter what your parents say, your friends say, your authorities say. You just follow your dreams. And Coco is the story of a man who wrecks his life following his dreams. Because he does so hurting his family and losing community and all of that. And I love that because it's so contrary to what Disney usually puts out. So I just want you to know, don't just have this sole focus on passion and desires. I'm not saying it's not important. It's an important part of the equation. Um, I believe if I'm walking with God, he'll give me the desires of my heart for that. Okay, one quick thing, especially on this point of desire. If you're asking vocational questions this morning, you know, open your phone, turn on your your photo app, and check this out. I was at Urbana 2018 a few years ago, and Bethany Jenkins, who was the director of Tim Keller's Center of Faith and Work, gave this great talk during that time, and the name of it was 
finding your calling, an alternative to follow your passion advice. And it's worth a listen. So if you're asking vocational questions, give that a listen. And now on to some advice. Some advice in relation. Number one, be patient. Entering your vocational calling, it takes time, and it will probably take longer than you expected. Nehemiah had a sense for his abilities and strengths. He had a sense of his burden for his home city. He had a desire that was already in his heart. He probably didn't do any personality tests. I doubt he did Myers-Briggs or DISC, but I think he knew who he was created to be. Do you not think so? And yet, his situation constrained him from being able to do the thing he felt called to. And that's true so much in life is you can't always just push into it. Sometimes due to certain particular circumstances, maybe a season of life, some family circumstances, I find me, uh, myself in a place where I cannot totally enter into my vocation yet because there's other things that I have to do, okay? So that's why we need to be patient. Um, and I want you to know if life circumstances, if that opportunity is not quite there, God knows and he understands, okay? He is working in your life. All right, so he's in the midst of that. I want you to think about patient and vocation with, I want you to think of Jesus, our Lord. Listen to this. 30 years of preparation. 30 years alone, right? Hardly known by anybody. Not alone, in community, but 30 years. Three years of ministry. Three hours of purpose, okay? Our Lord waited a long time to be able to live into the calling that the Father had given him. So I can do that, right? So I'm faithful with what God has me, with the situation I'm in. I'm prayerful about that. You know, I'm, I'm cultivating those desires, the things I think he put there. And, but I also know that my life is more than just work. Second thing, I want to challenge you. My advice is, is to per- pursue faithfulness. A very rare quality these days. Ask anybody who runs a business or company. There are not many employees anymore who are loyal, who have a sense of faithfulness. And I'm not saying we have blind faithfulness to where we're working, but I want to say this as a follower to Jesus, I ought to reflect the faithfulness of him in the environments where I'm at, right? And that's not happening much. I think we can pursue faithfulness in three ways. Number one, in working hard in what we're doing for him. Anybody who's a boss would say amen to that, right? Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. Working is for the Lord. So if you're not in your dream place yet, if you're like my friend who can't be in the mission field, you work hard, you do your best, you don't slack off, right? So you're faithful in those things, working hard and for him. You also focus, I would tell you, focus on the small things that scale. Um, again, for my friend, I would say to him, you're not in the place God eventually will take you. That's what it appears like. But what you can work on are things like honesty and integrity and hard work and trustworthiness and faithfulness, all of those things that will translate to whatever work I go to. So the things that are going to scale, the small things, work on those things. And then finally, and this is something I'm like, Pat, maybe I should drop that one. She goes, no, you need to say that. And I think I agree. It's consider the faithfulness of staying. Because our culture has this focus on climbing that ladder, right? It has this obsession with the new and the novel. It has this addiction to what are my desires and my passions, right? So much so, there's a proclivity in our culture to mobility and to moving. There's a proclivity to that. And this mobility rarely allows a person to put down roots in a community, especially in a faith community. It doesn't let you put down deep roots. 
And there's been a lot written on how the mobility of our culture is unraveling the social fabric of our culture. There's been a lot about that. So perhaps our focus related to mobility should be more on, I'm planning on staying where I'm at unless God is specifically asking me to move. Um, One thing about this last one, please don't make this a law. That's not my point. It's not my point. God can and he does move people. He moved Abraham. I can tell you other people. But I am really convinced that we need to consider this counterculture idea of faithfulness to place. Just throw that out. And then final piece of advice is this, discern vocational issues in community. You cannot know, really know, your affinity, your ability, your opportunities to discern those well without loving believers around you who help you discern that and walk through it. You can't do that alone. Do it in the context of people who love you, who follow Jesus, who care about big important things and care about you. The Quakers were great at this. They had what was called a clearness community. If anybody was considering a new career or job or something, they would gather their closest friends who they trusted, were discerning, who followed Jesus, and that group would ask them a lot of questions to help them in discerning if, the, if that maybe was for God, okay? Not in a weird way. We don't want to get weird with that, but it's still important. There's a couple at 12th Avenue who several years ago, uh, the husband had a chance for an opportunity somewhere else, and they gathered, Pat and I and a couple of other friends, and we had one of these around their table one night, had a great discussion, asked a lot of questions, and though the leaning was towards going because of that, they ended up staying, and I've always assumed it was a good decision because I know them really well, but I've never asked, so this week I asked with some fear and trepidation, and they said the, the clearness that they got from that was so significant, and the best decision was that they stay rooted where they are. And what was really cool is like two months after that decision, God gave them this amazing, the husband, an amazing opportunity in Poria, Kansas that so fits his sweet spot. Really, really cool. So let's do this in community. And one final thing. What if I'm retired? Something that I'm going to be eventually, okay? Here's what Gordon T. Smith says in his book, Consider Your Calling. He says, we retire to a new opportunity. Retirement is not an exit from, from, but an entrance into what is maybe the most fruitful and satisfying chapters of our lives. And here's what he says, is even after you retire, you have to ask these same four questions and ask God, what is it in this new season that you're asking me to do to make kingdom impact, to make kingdom impact? And that came from this book, and if I were to recommend one book on vocation, this is excellent reading, Gordon T. Smith's Consider Your Calling. It's not too long. There's really great stuff in here. So, all right. I'm curious, most important thing you learned this morning. We're, we're, if you've been here every week, we're down to the last two. We've got one more to go next week. Just a note, a thought, a phrase, what's the most important thing you learned this morning? This is more knowledge. Like, that's good. I'm glad I took that away. It's important for me to know. But you know, the bigger question is, is what was God saying to my heart? How was he nudging me? How was he tapping me in the shoulder? How was God specifically speaking to me this morning? So make a note about that.
And then in light of that, what am I going to do about it? Because God asked me to obey. So whatever he's speaking to me, what is a step I need to take? Well, if I'm convinced we need to recapture this idea of vocation, this crucial linking of our faith and our work, and that means that I seek to discern the things that God has put inside of me, that vocational calling on my life, for me to ask the question, how can I live my life for Christ and for others in a way that is consistent with how God created me? Significant question, right? And I ask that question because as the legendary Rabbi Zusa said, in the coming world, God will not ask me, why were you not Moses? God will ask me, why were you not Zusa? And so we, we want to live as best as possible with our discernment and broken world. We want, we want to live into that. Would you not agree? We want to live into our vocational calling. So 12, would you stand with me? I'd like to close this in prayer. Uh, and if you can't tell, one of my great strengths is I always go five minutes over. I'm really working hard on that. Trust me. There's just something God's wired in me. But uh, next year, it'll get better. Uh, that's my prayer. Anyways, 12, I want to pray for us. Can I do that? Father, thank you for your word for Nehemiah's story, for this idea that you've created us all to impact your world in some way. And Lord, even though none of us is going to find it perfectly in this life, Lord, I really believe you, you give us things that we can kind of, we can make movement in that direction um, because you want to use all of us in the spheres that we inhabit, in the places where you have put us, in the lives around us. So Lord, I pray that for everybody here that they, over time, would get to the point that they can vocationally find themselves in the place that you would have them to be. And this is my prayer for us, and I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, 12. Um, as always, you are sent to live into or to seek to discern your vocation.